welcome to Ars Arcanum, an exploration of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. I'm Nora, I'm joined by Mark. Hi, I'm Mark. And Autumn. Hi! You've got coffee. I do. If anyone hears weird slurpy sounds, that's why. Thanks, babe. I know I one listener that won't make upset, but... Well, thanks for antagonizing <laughs> the listeners. Yeah. So, we took last week off. We did. Uh, but we're back to close out Elantris, just like we, we said we were doing last week. <laughs> we gotta eat our veggies. We gotta clean the plate so that we can move on to the hope of Elantris next week. Did I read anything? I'm gonna go look at my Goodreads and see if I read anything. Don't worry, I did. Okay. Yeah, you read a couple things. I read five books. Um, well, Damn. I guess you could say I read two and a half books. I don't think Explain. I read a damn thing. Well, I've been working my way through Different Seasons by Stephen King, which is a set of four short stories, and I finished two of those in addition to the other three books that I read. Wait. Yeah. Three books plus those stories. So that one's been fun. Uh, what's the name of the first one? I never remember her name. Uh, Rita Hayworth and the well, Shawshank Redemption. I keep wanting to say Hawthorne. Rita Hayworth you... and, Sa- and Shawshank Redemption is the first short story ever. The fact that you didn't know who Rita Hayworth was I still, still don't bothering know. me. <laughs> She's just a fictional character from this story about a poster. Okay. So that was pretty neat. Uh, the audiobook does kind of a halfway uh, Morgan Freeman impression. Which uh, is on like... On a scale of like 1 to 10, how racist are we talking? Not very racist. Okay. Just like a little bit of like... Uh, that little low loping sort of okay. casual vibe okay. where it's like, I kind of think this is a little Morgan Freeman, but you're not going all the way. Okay. But it's clearly like it's, you're getting the character vibe from the movie. It's I not assume. that Star Wars guy doing a really bad Billy D. Williams that always comes off racist. Star Wars guy. The Star, Star Wars audiobook guy, Mark Thompson. Who always sounds racist every time he does Billy D. Williams' voice. I haven't... Oh, sorry. You said Billy D. Williams. Yeah. I heard... Bradley D. Baker? (laughs) Which I think is the guy who does the clone trooper voices. Which is also kind of racist. So I got confused about which Star Wars racism voice you were talking about. But yeah. There there are so many choices. The Lando impression in... The Thrawn Trilogy audiobooks is bad. Yeah. Anyway. It's, anyway. Sorry. Uh, anyway, that was a totally fine story. It was pretty cool. Um, no interest in really seeing that movie, though. Actually, all four of the stories in this book are going to be movies. Three of them already are. One of them was announced several years ago and has never manifested. Mm. But the yeah, next one was Apt Pupil, which is a story about how... This kid starts getting really obsessed with reading about the Holocaust and wants to know all of the, like, all the gruesome details of the Holocaust. And so he discovers that a person in his neighborhood is secretly a fugitive Nazi war criminal and uses that to blackmail the guy who's very old into telling him all sorts of fucked up stories about the uh holocaust and in doing so they both start this sort of descent into um 
I don't know what to call it, but there, there are, it's, it, the subtitle of the story is Summer of Corruption, and it sort of uses the Holocaust as, like, this corruptive thing that you can't comprehend, because when you try to, like, look directly at it, it starts to, like, change you, and, um, it, you know, turns into a story of the two of them trying to hide their connection to each other and try to hide the things that they start doing, which are murders. Mm. And Hate those. Uh, yeah. I and, mean, I love those, but... And it was, a, it was a really interesting story. The movie version stars one Ian McKellen as the Nazi in question, which was a weird vibe. See? Yeah. Yeah, that's odd. Huh. Yeah. Um, and then the other two stories I haven't read yet. One of them, I think, is the movie Stand By Me. I think that's what it's called. The movie oh, is that in that collection? Okay. Yeah. And then it's called I The Body. I hate that movie. And then the last one is called... Did um, not realize that Shawshank and The Body were from the same book. I really hate Stand By Me. One of my least favorite movies ever. It's the one where the kids find a dead body? Yep. Yeah. Uh, the last one is called The Breathing Method, which has been, like, hypothetically a movie. It was announced in, like, 2012 and has never really manifested. Mm-hmm. So, Stephen King. These, is, these have been my first Stephen King books that I've been reading. Mm-hmm. Um, been pretty interesting. They're not the other stuff that people know Stephen King for because these are like specifically um put together as four things that aren't like the horror that he was usually writing at the time ah despite the fact that F pupil is like drawing on horror a lot yeah but isn't like itself a horror story okay okay um you could definitely shoot it that way as like a like a movie or as a like tv show you could draw on like this energy there but okay um the other three books i read and i started a book too uh i read freshwater and dear senderan from by uh akweke amezi and those are just really really beautiful books that i love a lot and um i don't know what to say about them (laughs) Um, I, I do not know anything about those books or that author, so if you could tell me like just a tiny bit. Yeah. Um, uh, get, I'll read you what um, you messaged me yesterday uh, just saying, if you're comfortable with a book that heavily ponders suicide and self-harm as a constant presence in the author's life, you should read Dear uh, Senderin. Um, it's a memoir about Akweke Emeze's uh, life and career and spiritual embodiment. That's what, yeah, you, that's, that's what you told me. That's, this, that's the second one. It's uh, constructed in a bunch of letters that they write to uh, different people. Uh, Freshwater is a sort of uh it's a story about a a person <laughs> he just googled fresh water yeah 
is a story about a person who is an obanje. I think that's that pronunciation. Um, a person who is like a, 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 a reincarnating spirit who comes into a, a family line and dies and then is reincarnated again. And hmm. it's um, it's it's really good. Okay. Lots of, you know, like I said, content warnings about suicide and self-harm and assault and, uh, yeah. Sounds intense, but... Pretty intense, but very, like, very frankly and honestly and openly discussed in these books. Because mm. they're, they're very, like, true-to-life things that they are writing about. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, I just really enjoyed those books. Um, They're like my favorite author. Um, And then I also read Detransition Baby. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, was totally fine. So, so, uh, I'll (laughs) give the listeners some context. This... My first introduction to this book was a bunch, a bunch of people posting about it. Yes. This is a book... You might have heard of it on Twitter. A lot of people were posting about it. There was, um, in particular, like, some passage about, like, comparing trans women to, like, orphaned elephants or something. I don't, yes. I don't recall. Yeah. Um, that was going around a lot. And um, it, it became sort of a loaded subject, I think, in between us, because I grew kind of uncomfortable with like the way that people were talking about the book have not read it to be clear um but it was just like this like yeah it was a very big book about a a, lot of people were posting just like oh my god this book you gotta read it like like, it's the best book ever written and and this sort of like the snippets that were going around uh, did not vibe with me and it just became this weird thing. I, I don't know. It's hard to describe where, like, I got put off from this book in a very intense way because mm-hmm. of the way that people were talking about it, which, come to find out, is not really what the book is. So I, I thought from the way that people were posting that it was a memoir about someone detransitioning. I thought that this was going to be a version, uh, a similar thing to something they may shock and discredit you. Yeah. A, like, very personal memoir about detransition or like the someone like explaining to you what that is and why they chose to do it but instead it is quite simply a book Mm -hmm. it is a melodrama about some people Mm -hmm. one of whom has detransitioned one of whom is not one of whom is a cis person i didn't know it was fiction until you read it (laughs) yeah and the three of them are are trying to navigate each other and see if they can create a family between the three of them to raise a child. Mm-hmm. And it was totally fine. I didn't expect it to just be a normal book, but it is, in fact, just a normal book. And It, is, it sounds kind of interesting. I kind of want to read it. And it is the weakest of the books I've read this week. Mm-hmm. Two weeks. I guess we took two yeah. weeks. But it's totally fine. It is not the, like... Um, sort of 
quintessential trans book that, like, certain people online were seemingly making it out to be. Because it is a very different thing from what I've ever experienced. Like, mm-hmm. this is a different tr- generation of transness. And, like... There was a way of talking about it online that it seemed like this represents some sort of, like, universal experience of being trans. It, particularly, like, yeah. the the elephants thing that graded so badly against me. Which, Um, to explain, is just a a metaphor about uh, orphaned elephants let back into the wild who don't have any elder to teach them how to do, how to build elephant society. mm -hmm. And so they become very violent and, like, harmful and seeking to hurt other people and other elephants and destroy their environment. Mm -hmm. And this is, like, in the book, this is one of the characters, like, sort of pet metaphor to explain why trans people are always fighting with each other. Mm. Um, and it doesn't work <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Um, but uh, it's just uh, these people are older than us. Mm-hmm. And they're existing in, like, this sort of offline uh, community mm-hmm. space that we don't you and no. I don't have any experience with and also uh, this sort of like there's also a lot of being attracted to cis men mm-hmm. which is not a thing that I'm I have that much experience yeah with. not a thing that like you or I experience really not a, not definitely certainly not in this way because this mm-hmm. character is like specifically after dads mm-hmm. um but it is like on multiple angles, a just completely different sort of experience of being a trans woman mm-hmm. than I have had, mm-hmm. and uh, that that that's, makes that, it sound more interesting than yeah. the way that and and knowing realizing that it was not trying to be this sort of like I have descended from the trans mountain <laughs> and we have my tablets to like impart truth to all of you trans babies. Mm-hmm. Like, no, realizing it wasn't trying to be that. It was just, like, a story. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this is fine. Mm-hmm. It's obnoxious. The parts <laughs> where the, the 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 author sort of, like, peeks her head into the story to say something to you mm-hmm. about the state of things mm-hmm. is obnoxious. Mm-hmm. But it's like, eh, I would do the same about my own opinions <laughs> if I wrote a book. <laughs> it's just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> um... So, you know. Yeah. It's interesting. I definitely saw some of the posting that you're talking about. Like, I definitely saw a lot of uh, either just people posting on Twitter or also, like, reviews, which, you know, are, like, a form of long-form posting, talking about how... (laughs) (laughs) You okay? Are you okay? (laughs) You expect me to answer while I'm coughing? Um, I'm okay. Anyway. You just got me with long form post. <laughs> so I definitely saw a lot of very like glowing accounts of this book and like claims that it speaks to trans experience in a way that few books do. But I think, um, I for one thing was I haven't read this book, but even just from the posts I've seen, I was a lot more aware of what it is than it sounds like you were. Cause like mm-hmm. I knew that it was fiction, 
I knew the premise that you already said about like how it's about these three people trying to have a family together. I knew that the detransitioning or detransitioned character is not actually the viewpoint character. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think mm-hmm. that, um, I think that sometimes a book that is really strongly hyped, the way that the hype affects you depends an enormous amount on like the specific slice of the hype that you see if that makes mm-hmm. any sense mm-hmm. um because i yeah I, the the vibe that i got about detransition baby was wow this book is like really uh earnest and honest and biting about what it's like to be a particular kind of trans woman in a particular kind of culture mm-hmm. and that's like interesting but also not something i necessarily feel the need to read about was -hmm. the feeling that i had um but uh yeah like um i don't know um I, i i think that sometimes like trans people online can fixate on explicitly trans narratives in a way that puts more weight on them than they are really able to support, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also know that, like, a thing that I struggle with a lot is that, like... Okay, like, I'll, I'll, you know, give a specific example. Like, I have been um, reading Witch Hat Atelier since it was first started to come out in English, um, Manofsky, uh, at Manofsky article on Twitter, uh, was tweeting about it and I saw it and I was like, I'll pick this up. It looks really good. One of my absolute favorite manga that's, uh, you know, um, and it has in the last two or three months started to pick up a little more steam. Um, it it wasn't ever like, oh, this is like my obscure little book that only I know about. But it, it has gotten a little more popular as, like, I think the 7th or 8th volume just hit in the U.S. Um, and um, I can feel myself, every time someone starts to post about it, just get, like, a little irate. Because, like, I, I just struggle a lot with, if a thing is popular, I want to hit. <laughs> um, this is not a good impulse in me. I don't like... Is this a, a former film person impulse, do you think? Or is this a music person impulse? Yeah, this is a... Um, like... I don't think it's specific to any medium. I think this is an impulse that was brought <clears throat> about by... Me being a teenage boy hanging out on forums trying to impress other teenage boys mm-hmm. sort of thing. Because sometimes you have a thing where you're like, oh, this uh, that's a film Twitter aspect. Or like, oh, oh not Twitter, because you weren't on Twitter. But like, I, I, was, I was following Twitter. I wasn't posting on Twitter. Like, anyway. You, yeah. You've had like... There's stuff that I can trace back to. Yeah. Oh, that Behaviors. aspect of person, my personality is because I used to be like a big time film nerd weirdo. Yeah. Or music. Or, yeah. But no, this is just like... This sort of, like, male competitiveness that I could feel inside of myself. Mm. That if something is popular, 
I just get weird about it. I can't fucking read Chainsaw Man because it's too popular. I'm literally the opposite. <laughs> because my favorite, like, my favorite Gundam is F91. <laughs> I like to champion the little underdog things. Um, I mean, is, wait, I don't get how that, that strikes me as the, if Autumn hates anything that's too popular and you love the things that are obscure, are those not Yeah, similar? they're pretty similar. No, because Autumn doesn't experience love and I don't experience hate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, anyway, suffice this to say, like, part of the reason I think that, like, detransition baby became such like a weird thing in my head mm-hmm. was that i saw too many people posting like effusively about it online because it had like watered their crops and fed their children i also read the title as an imperative rather than a list of things in the book <laughs> I, didn't real- I didn't realize that the comma was there to denote a list of things in the book rather than a phrase. I mean, <laughs> I do think that the title is purposely being a little bit confrontational and being like, yeah, maybe you should detransition. Like, I, Baby. One of, <laughs> one of the things that I think is definitely true about this novel is that it is being very uh, confident about putting the concept of detransition front and center, yeah. which mm-hmm. is a super complicated topic. For a lot of trans people, and, like, it's one that, it's one that, like, anti-trans, you know, um, like, hate mobs, uh, try to leverage. So, I do Mm -hmm. think that the title, that the way that you could read the title as an imperative is, like, purposeful and, uh, like, meant to make you feel weird. Mm -hmm. Um, not to say I think the book is, uh on the side of the like fascist weirdos who think mm. everyone should de- should detransition that is not what i'm trying <laughs> to say um but it's sort of the same sort of logic that leads to like laura jane grace titling her memoir tranny you know um, yeah yeah it's 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 taking there's something... a whole scene about that in this book actually is there really yeah huh because <laughs> the 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 three of them are walking down the street and they pass like a poster <laughs> advertising the book and the one person this the cis person of that group points at it and says hey why does that poster say tranny <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and then they get pissed off that uh she wrote the book and called it tranny that's that's very funny i i was pissed off because she wrote the book and it wasn't that good <laughs> yeah that's you gotta swing you gotta hit <laughs> Yeah. No, if sorry, if you're gonna swing, you gotta hit. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. As far as like relationship to uh, popularity of media, I think mine is very different from the two of yours because, um, I mean, one thing is that I don't find myself to be. A, I feel as though there are several different, like I guess, media communities that I am a part of or that I witness and my relationships to them are different from each other and these communities often have very different opinions from each other. So to pick an example, um, I have a certain like awareness of a, a, a certain slice of like trans film Twitter, which is definitely a slice of Twitter that was and is very into detransition baby. Um, and this is also a slice of Twitter that 
uh, in many ways really likes um, Zack Snyder and the Snyder Cut. Mm -hmm. And also is very hotly anticipating the new Matrix film. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if anybody who would describe themselves as in trans film Twitter is listening to this and is like, you've mischaracterized us, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm trying to talk about a scene that is, you know, vaguely defined. But the point is, okay, those are some opinions that exist in a community that I'm aware of. And then I'm also in this, like, I'm in a couple of discords that are focused on tabletop games that are kind of like, one of them is like explicitly kind of linked to something awful. And then the other one is kind of an exodus of people from that one. So they, they're both kind of, I guess, culturally downstream from something awful. Um, and both of those discords do have a fairly large number of trans people in them, but I would not describe them as like trans spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and in those spaces, uh, the idea of the Snyder cut is mostly seen as like kind of annoying. And like, it's associated with like, obnoxious like uh entitled nerds who insisted on something that they really wanted and like i'm not out here trying to say that that is like a i i'm slightly more inclined towards the oh the snyder cut is an interesting artistic thing position Mm -hmm. however is the snyder cut beloved and like so beloved that it would almost be like countercultural to say actually i don't think it's very good or is it like maligned and like cast as like the result of sort of dude bro mobbing and therefore mm-hmm. it's actually kind of countercultural to say no it's actually good like zack snyder is a dumb guy genius i don't know which of these things is true i yeah. can't evaluate <laughs> that the question also- of what <laughs> Yeah, so the question. Sorry. The question of what counts as popular and what is like, oh, people like this, so if I dislike this, or people don't like this, so if I like this, I'm being kind of swimming against the tide. Like, I just don't know what that means for me. Um, And it does stress me out sometimes. Like, I, I, I get very stressed when I feel like I. when I feel like I like something that a lot of my friends dislike, or Mm -hmm. vice versa. Um, but when it comes to a sort of broader understanding than just my friends, um, I guess I become very confused. (laughs) What were you going to say, Nora? I don't know what, like, 40 plus year olds think about the Snyder Cut. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I have no idea what the Snyder Cut is to, like... MCU normal fans. people who no not normal fans MCU fans <laughs> <laughs> um yeah but yeah anyway anyway uh, I also started a book what'd you start once there were wolves what's that I don't remember this it's a book that I picked up at the bookstore and then I came home and read it online instead um it's a book about a person with let me see if I can pronounce this word right. Mirror touch synesthesia. Okay. You got it. Yeah, you got awesome. it. Awesome. Uh, where <clears throat> when she looks at someone, her body imitates the sensations that she sees them experiencing. Mm. So when she watches her sister put her face on the window, like rest her cheek on the window, her face feels cold. Mm. 
And when she watched, when, as a kid, she went into her dad's shed and watched him clean a dead rabbit. She thought that she was getting cut open. Mm. And so there's a whole... Meanwhile, she is uh, now an adult and a researcher studying wolves, trying to uh, bring wolves back into Scotland. Because they previously, wolves were having a great time in Scotland, but they got hunted out. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to reintegrate wolves into the ecosystem to try and help uh, the climate change over time. And uh, also she is like... There's, there are tensions between the people in this area who don't want there to be wolves because they've got sheep. They don't want to lose their sheep. They don't want to lose their, like, they don't want to be in danger of being attacked by wolves because they all think that wolves are super, super dangerous. And, uh, she's, like, really protective of these wolves. Hmm. And so, I... This sounds kind of interesting. It is pretty interesting. According to the blurb, uh, there's going to be murders soon. Oh, hell yeah. But I haven't hit that part yet. Somebody, I think somebody's going to start doing murders and framing the wolves. Mm. And she's going to have to figure out what's going on. Nice. While also possibly falling for the uh, cop in town. Nice. They have a meet cute where um, a horse runs by her. And then like a jeep comes out. And he's like, which way the horse go? Except <laughs> that he's Scottish. Uh, and so... She tells him, and he just drives his his car into the woods to chase this horse, and she follows him. Hey, asshole! You this these this area is protected. You can't just fucking drive your car through the woods. And then uh, after they like save this horse from being uh, like taken by this frozen like falling into this frozen river, um, he's like, "Oh yeah, also I'm the sheriff." <laughs> Mark, nice. you read anything? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have, uh, so, the I got a bunch of volumes of Golden Kamui, um, which is a manga hmm. that I had previously read, um, via, you know, sketchy online sites. Um, but now that I have access to a library, I just requested like all the volumes of golden kamui that they have um and then i told them to buy all the ones that they don't have <laughs> um we'll see if they actually accede to my request but i kind of feel like if you're a library system and you're gonna buy the first like 14 volumes of a manga that currently has i want to say like 18 volumes out in english you may as well like continue <laughs> like keep up with right, it right yeah um, so, you know, hopefully, hopefully it's the kind of thing where, like, they sort of want to get the rest of it and and just me telling them to is, like, a reminder. Um. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's been, it's been good. Like I said, so far, all the, all that I've been reading has been rereading for me. Um, but I'm enjoying rereading it, and I'm glad that I'm rereading it as, like, a setup to get into the parts that are new to me, because it is kind of like a plot ebook. Um. Mm-hmm. The basic premise of Golden Kamui is that uh, it's in, like, the 1890s in Hokkaido, Japan. Um, and it's, like, in the aftermath of the a, a recent battle in the Russo-Japanese War, I think is the war, the Siege of Port Arthur. And um, the two main characters, the deuteragonists, are uh, uh, Saichi Sugimoto 
who is a, a veteran of that battle who has basically is no longer with the army. I think he's like technically a deserter um, or like, no, I think he's just been like discharged, but like discharge. He, uh, in the first couple pages of the book of the first volume, someone is like, you were in the army, right? Like, didn't you get some money from that? And he's like, yeah, but I, I killed a superior officer who I thought was a jerk. So otherwise they would have given me like a medal and I would have had a ton of money, but now I'm like destitute. Um, and he, uh, he is this, like, he, he, he is kind of infamous. People call him Immortal Sugimoto because he, like, just will not die. He's completely covered in, like, fucked up scars because he's been close to death so many times, but he just, like, keeps fighting and will always, like, kill the other guy in, like, a desperate spot. And, um... His motivation is that he wants to try to collect enough money to send his, like, childhood love, who is also at this point the widow of his, like, childhood best friend and, like, war comrade. Um, because even though he was, uh, childhood loves with this girl, she ended up marrying this other guy, and then Sugimoto and the other guy go to war. The other guy gets killed, and as he's dying, he's like, Sugimoto, I need you to take care of my wife. She's very mm -hmm. sick. Her eyesight is getting worse. We need to get the money to send her to America so she can have an eyesight operation. So that's his thats his very, like, sympathetic and sad motivation. He needs money to uh, get this woman that he loves in this very kind of, like, chaste and noble way the money for her operation. Right. Um, And he finds out this legend about how there's some sort of, like, pile of gold hidden somewhere in Hokkaido that was collected by um, some Ainu people um, who are like uh, the indigenous people of that region. I think maybe not the only group of indigenous people, but anyway, um, collected by some Ainu to try to defend themselves against the like imperial wars that are happening there. Uh, but then supposedly somebody killed them and stole the gold and then that person was imprisoned and while in prison uh, tattooed a bunch of other prisoners with basically a map to the gold's location. And then all the prisoners escaped. And so uh, Sugimoto is trying to track down these prisoners and like find the map to the gold on their skin. And he encounters this young Ainu girl, Aserpa, um, and her father was one of the people who collected the gold. And so she wants to track down the gold because basically, as I say, this is kind of plotty, but <laughs> <laughs> um, because Tsukimoto kind of points this out, the people who have um, the like ring, the ringleader of this whole like gold map plan is still in prison and his jailers are not going to kill him because they want to know where the gold is. But as soon as the gold is actually found, that guy is basically a dead man. So Sugimoto is like, oh, you want to find the gold too as revenge for your father's killer, right? Okay, let's work together. Um, I don't even want that much of the gold. I just want enough to like save my childhood sweetheart. You can have most of it because it belongs to your people in the first place. And like, I'll be your muscle and you'll help us survive in the woods of Hokkaido because you're extremely experienced in like, well, extremely experienced. She's 12, but like way more experienced than Sukimoto in like hunting and trapping and like survival in general. And we'll track down these tattooed convicts and we'll figure out how to get this gold. 
Mm-hmm. And as you might expect, like three or four other groups of people are also trying to track down the gold. And all of the convicts are like these weird fucked up dudes. And uh, also people are, they're just traveling around Hokkaido eating all these different animals that live there. Um, and also there's a lot of uh, homoeroticism because there's just like a whole bunch of like tough men surviving in the wilderness. The, the, the um, two things that I knew about this book were that it was very plot heavy and that everybody I know who's attracted to men is really into this book. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, you know, it, it it is, like, there's just a bunch of, like, super cool, muscular dudes who end up naked a lot. Um, there's a scene that I haven't reached yet in my reread, but um, it's, they, there's, like, an I knew legend. And I should mention, by the way, these books are apparently pretty, like, exhaustively researched in terms of, like, 19th century I knew culture. Like, there's a... The back of every volume, there's just, like, a list of all the books that were used uh, as part of the research. Um, And I'm not really... It is possible to do a lot of book research and still fuck up your depiction of an indigenous culture. Uh, But, you know, I'm not really in a position (laughs) to judge that exactly. Um, But uh, there is supposedly a legend about how, like, otter meat, like, arouses people. And so, like... Uh, an unmarried like man and woman should not eat otter meat in like the same room as each other uh <laughs> and just a bunch of dudes who don't know anything about this eat a bunch of otter meat and then they're all just like oh it's so hot in here I need this to is the video my i clothes see go around off. on twitter okay and they start they all just decide that they need to start wrestling <laughs> It's really good. <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely playing it for a joke, right? But it's also like very earnestly horny. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, and like there's I just give you the very premise. There's like actually a ton of intrigue about like who is this guy who wrote this map and, you know, hid this gold and uh what was his actual plan for the gold? Like, what was he trying to accomplish with all that gold? And, like, what is his actual relationship to Hokkaido as a region and to the Ainu people? And, like, what is the future of Hokkaido and the Ainu and the future of Japan and the future of Russia in this region? What are all these things going to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely... There's definitely kind of a melancholy tone to it because there's a lot of stuff about, like, um, different types of animals that are being like hunted close to extinction because of like basically because of like industrialization and the pressures of uh you know imperial expansion so like um like the gold that Aserpa's like father and and other Ainu gathered in the first place is seen as kind of cursed because in order to pan a lot of gold out of the river you have to muddy up the water which fucks up the like breeding cycle of fish and so in order to get all this gold they fucked up all the fish which like messes with a huge important food supply for their people and is like kind of a taboo thing to do um and so there's this sense of like they 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 messed with the nature that our people rely on to survive in order to get money in order to buy weapons in order to like engage in war but then at the same time it's like well to do to survive because uh other people with guns are increasingly intruding on this region um 
And, uh, you know, there is something quite, I think, sad about reading these comics and knowing that, like, wolves are now extinct in Hokkaido and, like, the Ainu people and the Ainu way of life are, like, very, um, I, 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 like, I don't know exactly what the details are, but I think, like, many indigenous groups, they're, like, the, the Ainu, like, sort of historical culture is in danger of not being preserved, and there are very few, like, people who speak the language anymore in the real world. Um, so, like, mm-hmm. there is this melancholy sense of things moving into yeah. the past because of, uh, because of the actions of, of empires. Um, mm-hmm. but then there is also a kind of hopefulness, but at the same time, you know what history is, so it's a difficult hopefulness to live with. I don't know. It's all, it, it is kind of a yeah. silly adventure series, but I think it's got, uh, meaning, you know? Yeah. I'm looking at the pictures of the of this dog. Oh, uh, do you mean <laughs> is it like a like a giant white wolf or is it like a little Akita? No, I don't. I don't think there's anything giant about this guy except his personality. Yeah, so there's an Akita named uh, Ryu who is real cute and like a really like uh, well trained hunting dog, but also like definitely extremely a sweetie. Um, there's a there's a point where this like intense hunter character who is the first owner of the dog is like, oh, look at his cute little butthole. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did not read anything, but I'm going to like throw something to the audience a little bit. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't really have a good podcast to talk about this on. Maybe Gotham and maybe stairwells, but maybe here i don't know um i I rewatched the first season of hannibal this week so that i could watch the next two seasons um because that's usually the order that people go in yeah well i watched the first season last year it had been a while (laughs) so i rewatched the first season so that i could watch the second and third season and when we were at the bookstore i was kind of like looking at the mystery section like like the two two of my favorite books that i've read recently Three of my favorite books I've read recently have all been kind of like murder mysteries. Um, Shadow of the Wind, Night Film, and um, um, what was the other one I just thought of? Shadow of the Wind, Night Film, Magic for Liars. That was the third one. Really like Magic for Liars. Um, probably going to pick up The Echo Wife soon, um, the new book from that author. Anyway, um, if you have recommendations for murder mysteries... Um, Hit me up, because I just, I was feeling the urge to read one, but I don't know this genre very well. I don't want an Agatha Christie novel. Don't recommend me an Agatha Christie novel, but I, I guess I'm looking for something, like, a little darker that I think What Christie if it was an story. Agatha Christie novel read to you by Christopher Lee? I I have read two Agatha Christie novels. They're perfectly fine, perfectly ser- serviceable. I just, like... Like, Hannibal is not really a show about solving the mystery along with them. The, Hannibal is a show about, like, some really dark shit, and mystery is, like, the the backdrop of it. That's more the direction I'm looking I, for. I was really enthused by uh, baby Mads Mikkelsen in that show when I looked over your shoulder. <laughs> he looks so much younger in this. It was only five years ago. 
Still, he <laughs> looks like a baby. <laughs> um, yeah, I do feel like it's a good thing that you added that that detail about how you don't really want like an Agatha Christie style mur- murder mystery. You want one that is like fucked up in the way that Hannibal is, because I actually think that if you ask for a murder mystery, like I don't think the yeah. murder mystery genre as a whole has animal vibes on the average like no no i definitely i guess what i'm looking for is closer to like those three books i described particularly shadow of the wind are like closer to like noir in film um than i think they are to like like the sort of puzzle box murder mystery that people might think of when i when i say that um and i definitely think like, like I say, I mentioned three books that like fit the criteria that I'm I'm thinking about, but I definitely think that like the genre is expansive enough that I should like narrow down like the mystery matters, but not nearly as much as sort of just like dark and fucked up murder stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. You also do remind me that I feel like I should mention as I'm like effusively recommending Golden Conway that there's a lot of like serial killers in it. And there's a lot of, like, leaning into kind of, like, serial killer tropes. uh, Specifically, like, gay and trans serial killers. And, well, I think that the trans serial killer is great. And the gay ones are bad. (laughs) That's how I feel. I should read Golden Kamui. (laughs) These are are different people may have different perspectives on this. I don't want to act like I think that Golden Kamui is the good representation. Um, but I think that the the trans woman who runs a hotel and murders people is wonderful. <laughs> oh, I should keep reading Monster because I know oh, that Oh, yeah, Monster is what point. you want. Monster is absolutely what you want. Monster yeah, okay. is fucked up. Listeners, please please hit me with recommendations but I'm going to read Monster. That's what I'm going to do. Let me hit you with this one. Monstress. Monstrous good. Monstrous is more when I'm in a fantasy but, mood. Yeah. That's just a fantasy series. But yeah, no, Mon- sure. it's got the- Monster has, like, the fucking reflecting on the fucked up nature of the human spirit and, like, the way that people can drive each other to do horrible yeah. violence. And it's also got, like, central weird mystery stuff. And it's got, like, a, a haggard yeah. man who's just, like, suffering but but beautiful, which I understand that's also a big part of Hannibal. Yes, very much so. <laughs> um, yeah, I should get back to that. So, Speaking of beautiful men. <laughs> mm, oh, you mean me. Who would like... <laughs> <laughs> me when I'm reading Brandon's uh, annotations on Elantris. I'm just like every picture of uh, uh, Will Graham... Like, just looking like he's dying. <laughs> That's me when I'm reading this stuff. Do you want to start with the annotations, or do you want to start with the deleted scenes or the postscript? The postscript is the one that's actually relevant, that is actually real, like, a scene that happens in the canon of the story. Let's do... Let's do deleted scenes, postscript, annotations, emails. I think okay. that's the... That's the order they're in the book, and then we go outside of yeah. the book. So yeah, I think that makes, I, sense. That makes sense, yeah. sense to me. Eton, which I think is just a normal French name, isn't e- it? E- it's Eton in the audiobook, but we've covered at great length how the audiobook narrator is an unreliable narrator. 
I almost expected it to be Etone. Yeah, I I know that like I think it's pronounced Eton is like a like a fancy school in England. Uh mm. You know what you know what they're doing around noon over there. Are they eating? <laughs> they're having lunch. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so deleted so, scenes, the Mad Prince. <laughs> the Mad Prince. The Mad Prince. Uh, I guess there's... We're, we're not going to read a summary. I'm just going to hit you with I mean, I quick. can hit you with the, the summary Brandon gives. Okay, hit me with the summary Brandon gives. Brandon, this book uh, used to have another villain named Eton. Eton. We gotta pick one. I didn't pick Eton, one. go. <laughs> Eton was Rayadin's older brother and was crazy. Mm-hmm. And so he was sent away to a distant plantation to not interfere with the kingdom. He shows up with an army uh, at the uh, in the like third act of the book. And that's the army that... Um, that does what, like, Tellery's city guards? Aandel, yes. That Aandel fights against instead of the... Uh, Elantra city guards in the original draft of the book and also uh, obviously Etan also dies at that point mm-hmm. the same way that Tellery died and um, he was just wacky yeah and, uh, he's just the joker a little bit random uh, he's not the joker he never once laughs that's fair I guess or tells a joke yeah he just is kind of He's behaving erratically. Yeah, he's his uh his way like, of being quote unquote mad is fucking stupid. It's like he acts he, like a character in like Alice in Wonderland is what he acts like. Yes, yes. that's why I liked him. Because I mean, <laughs> what he does is like he he does like a bunch of like socially bizarre things. Like he's uh, he's meeting with Hrathen. And he won't eat off of plates or drink out of cups because he thinks they can be poisoned. So he's just, like, eating a pile of slop in his lap and having people pour a pitcher of wine directly into his mouth. And Hraithan is watching him and being like, oh, so cups can be poisoned, but pitchers can't. Hmm, very logical. Um, and then the next time Hraithan sees him, he has given up on this poison thing and is eating normally. So, like, he does stuff that's super bizarre for reasons that make no sense and he changes his mind all the time that's the way that him being quote-unquote mad works i guess that's i guess it's better than what i expected because what i expected was like actually like the joker or something i mean what do you mean by actually the joker i think the joker has been characterized in a lot of different ways in different media what joker were you expecting i mean like joker-fied like like evil sadistic crazy like Mm -hmm. Oh, like, I'm so like, fucked up. Like torturing Damaged. small animals, or, yeah. like just you know. uh, just doing a bunch of violence for no reason and being like, "Yeah, isn't this society or some shit like that?" Isn't this fun? Aren't you having fun? <laughs> yeah. I I don't feel like that's always what the jo- uh. I mean. I think that is what Joker fight is sometimes, but. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I mean when I say become the Joker. I mean getting fucked up yeah. and edgy. I mean, I do yeah. think I but, do um, think that like the way that Eaton is talked about is kind of fucked up and edgy. Where like it's kind of Brandon's idea of fucked up and edgy for this book, where it's not just like a bunch of violence for no reason, but it is him being like super, uh, like at the same time as like being all crazy. 
he's also like in a weird way super canny and super like direct and doesn't give a shit about like social norms and is just trying to do what he can do to take power right so when he meets with Raithen, he's just like okay what will i get for converting can your people teach me to make siege engines okay how do i convert i make an oath all right i'm making the oath now bye um and i think right. that is meant to be kind of um like i think that is meant to reflect a kind of like terrifying cold power in him you know uh but (laughs) the reaction i had was that this guy's funny this guy's way too comedic for this book because like the the last of these deleted scenes is raiden's execution Mm -hmm. and he's like uh and after after um etan is dead they're like, okay, uh, Rayadin gives a little speech saying Serena should be queen. Wait, sorry, you said Raithen's execution, but it's actually Rayadin's, right? I said oh, Ryan. I'm sorry. I'm... No, 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 you, miss, you misspoke just a second ago, actually. It's, it's they, then they go, okay, time to have the execution. And then the, uh, the headsman closes his eyes and swings at Raithen, at Rayadin's neck. And they reveal, oh, this is how we do things now. The executioner just closes their eyes and swings. And if they miss, then the person was innocent. And if they uh, kill them, then they were guilty. Yeah. And it's like, that's a weird comedic twist at the end of this, like... like Dramatic. I I say dramatic, and I don't mean that I was invested in it. But But it is is a, like, in in its own... It takes itself seriously. Yeah, Yeah, It is and going a, for a drama. really weird tone shift to have this goofy, like, waka-waka. I mean, I get why you find this to be, like, humorous, because I agree, it is ridiculous. But I don't actually think Brandon was aiming for humor with this. And I think maybe the fact that it comes across humorous is why he felt he had to cut it. Because I think he was aiming for, like, chilling. Like, isn't it fucked up that someone would have such a casual approach to the ideas of guilt and innocence that they would that he would essentially command them to leave it to chance. Like, I think there's a there's a point where Hathen is thinking about um, Eaton and how he is so um, unpredictable that it makes him really dangerous. Um, he, he's like, uh, Eaton was a complete unknown, like the Che piece in the game Shinda, which moved differently depending on what pieces were closest to it. The attribute infuriated Raithen. Before Eton, he had never met a man he couldn't understand. Even Diloph had been predictable to an extent, especially in his lust for power and hatred of Elantris. Um, so, like, yeah, there is this idea that he's just, like, random and, like, in that sense, kind of laughable. But also, like, Raithen doesn't know how to predict him and that makes him dangerous and Raithen is kind of afraid of him and, like... I think there's this sense that he kind of plays with people's lives. Um, I agree, though, that, like, it does just feel ridiculous. He doesn't actually... It, it It is very implausible that this guy managed to get an army who are, like, loyal to him. Uh, and, like, even yeah. so yeah. loyal to him that they will follow his absurd commands after his death. Um, yeah, it's not very plausible. <laughs> The the thing that um, Eton, I guess the the sort of like 
what would have made him interesting in this book to me and this is like really stretching because i don't think these chapters work for me in any way just like for me like what they are trying to do, I don't think they do very well. But I think that's true of most chapters in Elantris, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, the, the, it, I sort of started to think this in the first couple of deleted scenes with him, and it really got crystallized in the raid and execution scene. Eton is supposed to serve as this sort of, like, we have been told so much that Raiden is the good king. He is the good ruler. He is the good leader because he cares about his subjects um, and because he's very, like, noble by disposition and he treats people well and he he gives a good speech, etc., etc. Um, and Eton showing up in here, I think is a little interesting as a sort of, like, counterpoint to, like, okay, if Raiden is a good leader, we need an example of a, of a bad leader in the book. But also, like, Tellery and Iodon both serve these functions in the book, so I don't, like, I don't really know what Eton would have done. I, I think he's maybe a... I think he's a more elucidating counterpoint um, of Brandon's worldviews than Eodon was, because, like, Eodon, we are just constantly told without much, like, textual evidence that he's a bad guy and he's not very smart and etc, etc. Like, we get that a lot, and we see it a little bit, but we're mostly just told that. Like, I think the interesting thing about Eton is that, yeah, you see the, like, this is, in Brandon's mind, what a bad leader is and a good leader is the guy who nobly faces his execution and like gives a good speech and you know secures his legacy um and cares for the soldiers um the caring for the soldiers part really just like hit me like okay this is like what brandon is like preoccupied yeah. with you know the, when, reading the first two of these deleted scenes i was like oh is this guy like having a laugh is he putting this on and then he just dies if it was the fact that Eton has been like just pretending <laughs> to be quote-unquote mad so that he can just ask people stuff to their face mm-hmm. and like just do weird shit to see what happens to see how people react when he like makes them uncomfortable that's interesting Eton? i don't think brandon no. would do that but that version of Eton would be really fun as like this guy who's like if I just pretend I'm crazy, I can yeah. do anything. I can just ask for that would be engines. a guy who is yeah. mad in the way that Hamlet is, like pretending to be so he can like accomplish like a secret purpose. Right. Um, Don't know anything well, about he, Hamlet. Hamlet does that. Don't worry, we do. <laughs> I get Hamlet and Macbeth kind of mixed up. That's fine. Culture um, in general kind of does that a little bit too, so I don't think you can be blamed. Um, yeah, I have seen the Lion King though. Does that help? Mm, Pretty different. I mean, no. It doesn't doesn't really help with the idea of, like, Hamlet being kind of mingled into other things in popular culture. No. In fact, I would say that's, like, one of the main ways that that happens. Mm. Um, Lion King is, I think, very different from Hamlet and just has, like, one idea in common. I've also read the first act of Dune. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. Is Shakespeare is Shakespeare um, so popular that you hate it and can't read it, or is it obscure in a way that makes you want to read it? 
Uh, <laughs> I fucking love Hamlet. It's my favorite shit in the world. But also, like, there there is a certain cultural gravity around uh, Shakespeare that I sometimes have to, like, check myself mm-hmm. on. But also, I do just kind of like Shakespeare. Yeah. I'm not, like, crazy about it, but anyway. I've never earnestly engaged with it outside of, like, as a child doing, uh, like, reciting different scenes. I've never, like, seen a play of it or a movie of it. So, Mm -hmm. like, I've never, like, seen it taken seriously outside of, like... That might be an interesting story. I think Shakespeare is is interesting stuff. I think reading Shakespeare is, like, cool. (laughs) I sound sound like such a fucking dork, but... I find it difficult to read plays. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. I think if we were going to... If I was going to, like, introduce you to Shakespeare in some way, I would probably just find a good adaptation that I like. I would probably do an audiobook. Which, yeah. like, I guess that's just a script at that point. I think... But, I'm sure there um, are, like, like radio plays of Shakespeare plays. Orson Welles yeah. did a number yeah. of uh, Shakespeare radio plays. Um, but I, I quite like the few that I've heard, so... It, it would be either that or, like, obviously, there are so many movies. Yeah. Mm. So many movies. Anyway, sorry to distract. Anyway. Uh, clearly, I really don't want to talk <laughs> about the Elantris bonus material. <laughs> well, hey, let's look. At, let's talk about the best part of what we read this what week. Do you... Oh, can I say one last thing about Raiden, unless Go Mark had it. anything? Um... The other thing about the Raiden execution scene is it just makes him even more Jesus-y, oh, yeah. I think. <laughs> It just, yeah. like, extremely goes hard on the Jesus stuff here. Um, yeah. In a way that, like, the book does, but, like, oh my god. <laughs> Imagine if Jesus is there, like, lying down on top of the boards, and they raise the hammer to put the nails in. They're like, well, just kidding. I, I can't, <laughs> I can't I believe there's this whole bit, because the, the, the Raiden's, like, speech before his execution is seen from Hraithan's point of view, and Hraithan is watching him being like, what is he doing? How could he be emotionally manipulating these people? It doesn't make any sense. And then it's like, then eventually Hraithan is like, oh, he's trying to be a martyr. And it's like, how does Hraithan not, like, what Raiden is doing here is actually a pretty simple ploy. It, but the way it's presented is like, Hraithan doesn't realize that he truly cares about these soldiers. And it's like, oh, come the fuck on. He's trying to, like, secure the power of the person that he trusts like yeah he's doing that because he thinks that's what's best but like oh good lord it's just more like raiden is a good king stuff and the way that hraithan seems like what a good king is like just so annoying yeah uh should we talk about the postscript yeah all right um I, uh, I don't have much about, like, what Brandon had to say about Elantris itself. Yeah, um, no. Good for him. He's made a bunch of fucking money. I don't care. It's basically, um, it's basically the having... same thing I think any author would say looking back on their f- successful first novel after ten years. It's like, damn, I didn't know what it was like to have a successful novel, but my novel was successful. And it's like, all right. <laughs> but he's like it wasn't that successful though but it was like present forever yeah the 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 anecdote about how like um elantris has sold three to four hundred copies like every week forever. for 10 years is fucking bananas to me <laughs> i cannot I just... yeah nobody loves it but everyone likes it <laughs> oh, they, 
Every week, 400 people read Mistboard and say, eh, I guess I'll read the other one. <laughs> uh, would you like me to read the summary of the postscript? Yeah, go for it. Hoyd stands besides... De- blah, 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 blah. Hoyd stands beside Devotion's perpendicularity and unwraps bandages from his face. He is surprised that his face and hands appear the same and that he did not transform into an Elantrian. He is accompanied by a dark hovering sphere who trades witty banter with him and accuses Hoyd of failure in his attempt to transform. Hoyd says he is not disappointed and says he sees beauty that there are still secrets to investigate, and he loves puzzles. Hoyd steps into the perpendicularity and vanishes. Perpendicularity, huh? What the fuck's that? That's yeah, not That's a that's a vocabulary. That's not word. in Elantris and that's not in this postscript. That that phrase. I that's yeah. the pool. Um, that's the suicide pool. Yes. Yes. You're so with the short story next week, in when it was put into the Arcanum Unbounded collection, each setting has a little brief um description of it that we will probably read. Mm-hmm. Um and that will have some more proper nouns yeah. as well that you're just going to be given. I'd... But yes, that's what happens. This is the the the, the new Hoyd chapter. I, mm-hmm. Man, we were so excited we should, about I want these things to be in the book and to be developed. Like, I, I wanted to know yeah. what the fucking pool was. And like, this evil Sion that Hoyd is talking to would have loved some of that stuff to be in the book. This comes up in the annotations too. That Brandon is like, yeah, there were going to be evil Seons. They were, um, they were called, what the hell does he call them? Like, uh, Skaze or Skaze or something like that. And I'm just like, ah, oh, I would have loved that. But no, none of that was in Elantris. It's just kind of teased as like maybe a sequel thing. And yeah, see. This is, like, halfway interesting to me as someone who's read other or, uh, Cosmere books. We should talk about... We should briefly introduce the audience to who Hoyt is, but let me finish what I'm saying real quick. Th- this is, like, halfway interesting to me. This is a much more interesting scene, I think, if the next book I'm going to read is Elantris 2. <laughs> but, as I have said so many times, it has been... 15 or more years and there is still no sequel to this book which means that this is nothing well you lose this is not even a sequel hook really yeah because all this is is like i mean it's not actually even new information if you've like read more cosmere stuff yeah it's it's like oh this guy is investigating types of magic. If you read this in 2015, when this is added to the book, and you're familiar with other Cosmere shit, there is essentially nothing new for you here. Because you're like, yeah, I knew that he was doing this. You... I guess this is a description of one of the times he's done this. So, but... so to set up who Hoyt is for, you know... Are many listeners who are probably not familiar with the Cosmere in the way we are. And I'm not going to give anything really away here. But he is a guy who is going to show up in almost every Cosmere book. Sometimes in pretty minor roles. Like, in this book, he was just a random beggar guy. uh, Who, you know, was clearly disguising himself as a beggar. Um, In in other books, he will have a very pronounced role. I'm not going to tell you which books he's going to be very pronounced. He's not in every book, but he's in every setting. 
Yes. Yeah. So there are like some series where he might make a brief appearance in one book, but not really be in the others. And the thing that I guess I'll tell you as a you know reader to to watch out for Void doing here, he is trying to get himself transformed into an Elantrian, and not really clear how he intended to cause that to happen because it doesn't seem to be uh, in any way successful. <laughs> yeah, like it seems to be a pretty random occurrence. Yeah. So. But so I just. I guess if you're a reader and you see Hoyd, just think about him being a guy who's going around trying to learn stuff about how one might become an Elantrian or or other things like that, I guess would be, you know, without giving too much away, that's sort of the like very broad what his deal is and you're going to see him a lot going forward. I, I think, uh, I, I gotta say, as my first like sort of direct encounter with Hoyd because I'm pretty sure he's like been in some of the books that I've read but like I don't know I guess I wasn't really conscious of Mm -hmm. his broader role or like also he might he might not have Mm -hmm. actually been called by that name so I don't also these are just books I don't remember so I'm considering this my like first really sort of direct encounter with Hoyd this scene I don't Mm -hmm. like him at all I find him annoying he's (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's a little this, twerp. This is the, this is not the best Hoyd scene that Brandon. I mean, has he's ever no. he's like is, he's random in like an annoying. He's like, yeah. oh, one time I ate a live frog. Oh well, it wasn't quite a frog. It was purple and had extra legs. And it's like this is boring. I don't care about this. And like, um, also like the sphere he's talking to, like evil Sion, is like, uh, uh, like kind of mean and snarky but in a way that i don't find very compelling either um yeah it's the it's the marvel problem where you can't really put two snarky characters in the same scene i feel like because but this is um this feels weird this scene yeah because like i guess this is a pointless conversation to have but i don't think that hoyt acts like this usually Mm -hmm. i feel like this is not Hoyd that often like he's he can have jokes and stuff but i don't remember him being this like egregiously this lol random yeah lol random i would i would but i don't know did brandon write this in 2005 or in 2015 i would love to know that I think he wrote it in 2015. I think so. He's never mentioned it before. I, I think... He didn't know who Hoyd was when he wrote Elantris. Yeah, that's fair. He Yeah, he must have written it in 2015, because I don't think he had a good sense of who Hoyd was, other than guy who's going to show up in all the books. I have, like, a very dumb little question. Is his yeah. name definitely pronounced Hoyd? Yes. Okay, yes. Then... <laughs> because there's, there's that Yeah, because yes. the, the evil Sion keeps calling him Hoid. Which I guess mm-hmm. it just kind of means is like a like an insult, I suppose. But it just I don't know. It falls flat to me because the man is clearly not Hoid, and also Hoid and Hoid don't really sound similar. So it just no, unless it's Hoed, Hoed, and it's saying, "Hey, Hoed," and he's like, "It's Hoid." Yeah. <laughs> it's Hoyd. His name's Hoyd. His name's Don't worry Hoyd. about it. <laughs> it's a um, dumb joke. There's, I, 
I worry that we're putting too much gravity on the scene because it is like kind of the focal point of this episode of the podcast because we uh, clearly talking more I, about Hoyd than we are about Eton or the annotations. But I, I'll say that as a person invested in like broader Cosmere stuff, it Brandon going in and writing a Hoyd scene into a book ten years after it is released. I want that to be a little more momentous than it is. I I would have maybe liked a three-page story instead of a one-page story, you know? I, I would have I would have liked a little more insight than what we get here. I thought there were going to be new scenes throughout the book. I was under the impression that like nope. he was editing the book, but he's not. He's not. Um so yeah, this is like I was talking to Autumn about the way that we are introducing Cosmere shit into our podcast and like the order that we're reading stuff in is going to be a little weird at times um just because we're going to like with this Hoyd chapter being added in after the fact and some other stuff that we're going to read it's going to be like a little was there anything notable in the Ars Arcanum itself no. it was absolutely okay. it wasn't even called Ars Arcanum until our it was version. just a list of okay. it was and just there... a list of aeons yeah. okay I think we talked about this before but I couldn't remember yeah um, well, yeah, when we talk about, uh, the hope of Elantris, the short story, that's in a, you know, for Mark and for listeners, and Mark, we can get you, you know, this, um, that is in a collection called Arcanum Unbounded, um, where it's going to have, it's gonna, there's gonna be an intro that's sort of like, here's what the planet that Elantris takes place on is called, and here are some notes. And I don't really know, like, I don't really know what's the appropriate way to, like, intro that, because I, there's, just... there's no sort of, like, publication, publication order that is, like, immediately obvious because I don't really want to, like, get, like, you know, six years down the line and, and be like, okay, now we're just going to go spend three weeks reading forwards to short stories we've already read in Arcanum Unbounded. Uh, so it was like, <laughs> yeah. so, so all the short stories that were published in Arcanum Unbounded were also previously published in other ways without those setting forwards. Yes. I see. Except for Edge Dancer. I see. Except for... Edge Dancer Edge and Dan Mistborn Secret History, I think. No, Secret History came out as an ebook. Yes, day and date with that. Yes, um, okay, okay. But Edge Dancer was specifically in Arcanum Unbounded first, and then it was released separately later. Yes, which would have made it 2016 or 2017. 2017. 2017. Okay. So yeah, like the Hope of the had previously been published, and then in 2017. Um, Brandon writes a foreword to the Hope of Elantris as it appears in Arcanum. Okay, well, we'll have to talk. I think we should talk off air about exactly how we're going to approach that. Um, I have, like, a, a, a proposition, just based on this, like, first mm -hmm. encounter yeah. with Hoyd and the fact that he seems to be this guy who, like, travels to different places and, like, experience, tries to engage directly with the magic there. Um, is he kind of, like interacting with the Cosmere in the way that we do? Like, traveling to the different places and trying to comprehend their puzzles in some and, ways, and yeah. them together? Um, There's, um... 
I, there's something I could say here that I, I won't. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, um, I don't think Hoyt is like strictly like a reader no. insert character, but I think he's, I think he can often serve as a sort of like anchor for the reader of like, there's all this stuff happening in the book and then Hoyd will show up even just for like one page and you'll be like, ah, okay. There's, you know, I know that bigger, bigger things are afoot, you know. Um, he almost has um, Nick Fury energy. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was going to go there. I was like, because some of our friends were talking about how they just don't care to get invested in the Cosmere in the way that I am. Um, I'll, I will cop to, like, this is sort, in some ways, like, my MCU a little bit, where, like, sure. they could just, Brandon can just keep telling me stories in the Cosmere forever, and I'll be more But there is, satisfied. like, a story. Th- there is there is a story that he's building, too. Like, there is an ending. Yeah, that... because the last Cosmere books, the two, I think, no, I don't think it's a full trilogy, but the last two Cosmere books are Hoyd's, like, personal adventure. Mm-hmm. And so that's like clo- that's the closing act of the yeah. setting, uh, as of twenty twenty one. Yeah, <laughs> who fucking knows? But um. uh, so yeah. so I mean, uh, I, I when you say he like has Nick Fury energy, what what does that mean? Oh, Nick Fury being the character who shows up in every um well, at, in the beginning mm-hmm. before the Avengers movie. He shows up at the end of the different individual hero movies and, like, hints that he's trying to collect them into, like... A superhero team. And so Hoyd is, like, a character who will appear uh, in certain books to hint at, hey, I'm here to make sure that the overarching plot is also happening. I see. Okay. Yeah. Who knows what I'm yeah, up to? Yeah, all right. That's fine. Yeah. I, I don't feel like that's yeah. an inherently bad thing. I, I feel like, uh, I guess, metaplot is a word that I've heard used to describe this kind of thing sometimes, right? Like a plot that is made up of other yeah. plots. And, and like, yeah, uh, sure. multi, multi-setting world building. I mean, you know, that is, like, yeah. what the fucking Cosmere is. So, like, of course I am interested in it. Of course I am invested in that. I'm trying to, like, read these books. Um... <laughs> Do we want to... Unfortunate. I was just going to say, it is unfortunate that there are are a lot of facts about the Cosmere that only exist in Brandon Q&As rather than being in the books because he's constantly like, no, 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 I have my on-ramp to these ideas in Mm -hmm. the book. And you will... There are certain parts of these books where he, like, introduces fundamental aspects of this setting through the characters it's like i have these constructed ways of introducing these ideas that we'll get to but mm-hmm. yes this works like this mm-hmm. in theory yeah and so he's constantly like answering these questions about how things work but also he does like in his books he has a specific way he intends to introduce most of these concepts. he's not just he's not straight up just trying to write a wiki here um he wants to like world build through narrative, but at the same time, he does just make verbal wiki posts for you if you want that. Yes, he does. Yes, because when you do go to a signing, you're allowed to ask him any one question. 
That's that's very funny. That well, framing. Uh, it's, it's very like it's very like he is some sort of like strange genie or whatever. <laughs> yeah, because well, because you might ask the wrong question, he'll say Rafo, and yeah. then you then that's your answer. You got to read and find out. Yeah, because uh, like yeah, if you ask too specific a question, he will just tell you read and find out. Yeah, and that, now you've wasted your wish. <laughs> And but I'm a story he, genie. There are plenty of of citations on the Compromise that lead to audio recordings of book signings. Does he example. does he remember who you are? And if you ask a bad question, he says Rafo, and then you show up at another signing and try to ask a better one, and he's like, uh uh uh. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think he's that, like that would that, that would be absurd. I, he has an assistant he's hired specifically <laughs> to remember you asked a bad question at the last one. Um. By the, do we want to move on to like the annotations or maybe do so? Yeah. There were more deleted scenes, um, most of which I think are like not of a great deal of interest. Like, in fact, the difference between those scenes and the novel is written is like pretty slight. Uh, but there is like a whole alternate ending, like a different climax to the novel. I didn't read this. I didn't know it was there until you texted us about it, like either this morning or last night, and I didn't make time to. Yeah, go find I think it. maybe if we talk about that, we should talk about it at the end of the annotations. But I don't know how in depth you two actually want to go into all this stuff. I I think there's a lot of like things in these annotations that like stand out and like make me have thoughts. But at the same time, the annotations themselves are very. Um, granular and like nitpicky about Elantris and the writing process for Elantris and the tone of all of them is exhausting. Yeah. They were written in like um self-congratulatory. And they were written in like 2005. So like much I think they were written between when Elantris came out and when Mistborn came out. Like in some in some of them he's so. like get excited for Mistborn. Um so these are not annotations from the perspective of, like, the later Brandon that we've kind of gotten the sense of where he's like, yeah, Elantris, like, it had helped me break out, but it's not my best work. Um, that's not the viewpoint he is in when he's writing these annotations. Brandon writing these annotations thinks Elantris is hot shit. He loves it. He really thinks he's made something special with this fantasy story without violence. Yes. I, uh, one, so I, I took notes on these annotations. I don't normally take notes, but not because I don't, I find it relatively easy to remember the things that I thought about, like, the events of the chapters of Elantris, because I can remember the stuff that happens. Whereas the annotations, because they were samey, in order to remember the chunks that I did have thoughts about, I had to take notes. Um, and one of my notes on the annotation for chapter eight just literally says, your fantasy world is so derivative. <laughs> because he says something about, like, how uh, I don't think... he He's talking about how he thinks that his setting is so uh, inspired and, and non-generic. Uh, I think that too often fantasy writers are content with simply throwing in a slightly original spin on magic ignoring the fact that their cultures, governments, and religions are derivative. There is this idea of the general fantasy world, and writers draw upon it. However, I think an interesting cultural element can be just as fascinating and and as useful to the plot as an interesting magic system. And it's just like, I see what you mean in that you have the ambitions of, like, 
cultural world building and like making up these cultures that are, that do not just rely on you filling in information that you know from the real world or from your genre expectations of what Euro fantasy is. Like, I get that that's a type of world building that you value and that you think you're doing, but like, that's not Elantris. We talked so much throughout our discussion of Elantris about how it relies on lazy assumptions about what a medieval fantasy world is. And like, it's so bizarre that he's in this section being like, Oh, yes, yeah, so many fantasy worlds are so derivative, not like mine. <laughs> you literally took the word Jindo from your favorite yeah, books. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, you, you expected us to rely on, like, our understanding of what damnation is. Or, like, uh, one of the things that I... I mean, right before this, in this same annotation, he's talking about, like, oh, I think Erlon's, like, system of nobility and its economy is is really inventive, I worry if I made things too weird. Um, but it's like, no, like you're so much of a Lantris rests on the idea that, that a hereditary system of nobility, like a feudal system is kind of like natural and what you expect. And like that itself is such a lazy genre signifier. <sighs> also in the same annotation, uh-huh. I scrolled down because I was looking through this. Um, we have... I don't get to deal with that aspect of Andor very much in this particular book. Uh, a lot, there are a lot of interesting ramifications Andor would present for a book during Elantris' heyday. What good is gold if someone can create it from nothing? In fact, what good is a monetary system at all when everyone can have as much food as they want? What need is there for invention or ingenuity in the face of a group of people who can recreate any good, no matter how complex, with the flick of the magical wrist? Like, you're showing a lot right now, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, the... Yeah. <laughs> like, and then he goes on to say, well, the truth is that Elantrian magical abilities are far more limited than Serini or Luca acknowledge in this chapter. Uh, as we learn in the later in the book it's a complicated difficult skill to master it's like you didn't put that in the book yeah you literally just have characterized these people as gods uh for the whole book and even though Raiden is having trouble learning Aeondor that's because he doesn't have a teacher yeah there's no one here to give him the knowledge yeah the idea that like we're supposed to take from how like complicated and difficult it is for Raiden to learn Aeondor we're supposed to take from that that like actually very few Elantrians could, like, accomplish the godlike stuff. I don't think that makes any sense at all, because, like, actually, Raiden picks it up pretty quickly. And, uh, once yeah. the, like, power switch flips back on, Raiden is able to do, like, the godlike shit, basically. Um, so yeah, and, and also, I think the idea that, like, like, even though his specific way of talking about it, where he's like, oh, what need is there for ingenuity? Like, that's obnoxious. That's very capitalist, whatever. But, like, it is true that if people can just infinitely generate any type of good through magic, more or less effortlessly, that would majorly change, like, the economy of a, of a society. Like, that would have a huge effect. Yeah. And I don't think you actually need to have every Elantrian be able to do that. Like, even if you just have one guy who is really skilled at Aeondor and therefore can make any object relatively quickly. Like, with, you know, he has to focus. Maybe sometimes he's going to fuck it up. But this is someone who can literally make anything. 
just that one guy changes society. Um, and also, why? What need is there for invention or ingenuity? Well, how do you know people wouldn't devote time to studying Aeon Door to create more efficient ways of doing stuff? Like more, like it's they're symbols, but they're symbols made of components because it's a language, yeah. and people are always writing new sentences. And, and- People are always finding new ways to say things. People would find new equations and new new ways of drawing symbols to make things easier and more like efficient. And I think that some of the way he talks about Aeondor in these annotations suggests that in fact, yeah, like Aeondor, the magical system and, and like the, the set of like symbols that create the magic is itself the product of like years and years of experimentation and refinement. Um and I don't know, there's a lot of, like, stuff in these annotations where he kind of reveals world-building things where it seems as though he expects you to have picked up on these things from the books. Uh, he's, he, it's just sort of like, of course mm-hmm. this is true. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like the, this annotation does this. As we learn later in the book, Aeondor is a very complicated, difficult skill to master. And so he kind of expects us from that to understand that truly skilled usages of Aeondor are rare. Um, there's a, I didn't take notes on this, but there's, there's a bit in this where he kind of talks about, like, the way that the base power of Aeondor kind of comes from the land, but then these, like, extremely complicated, uh, equations that, that Raiden is learning, like, those are the result of, like, a, like, develop, experimentation and development, and again, I think he kind of expects that you'll just, like, understand that from what you see in the book, but it's, it's not there, um, <sighs> yeah, uh, I've also got. I paid particular int- uh, uh, pr- attention to the what? Do you finish what you were saying? I was gonna. I was gonna talk about the Hraithan, specifically the Hraithan annotations is what I put most of my attention toward, uh, which is where I found this paragraph of, um, that I that I posted for you, Hart, about um, Orson Scott Card, Gene Wolfe. And oh, listen! I fucking activated when I saw this. I. Oh my god, Ben and I talked about this a lot, and we're going to talk about it now. This is the annotation on chapter 15, um, where Brandon is kind of talking about, like, what he thinks his artistic goals are, and what he thinks he succeeds at well in his prose. Okay, I'm just gonna- I, I'm glad that we got, like, two different fans who get pissed off about this, because I don't know Gene Wolfe, but I was pissed off when I read him saying yeah, this is here. Him, okay, here's what he says. Every writer is different. We can't all do everything perfectly. As a writer, one of the things that I don't do is beautiful prose. I don't think my prose is bad, but it is somewhat utilitarian. Some authors, like Orson Scott Card, can turn this minimalism into a strength itself. I'm not there yet. I still write with a more flamboyant style. I'm just not a brilliant prose craftsman like Jean Wolfe or Ursula Le Guin. I think I do other things, however, that are better than those two can manage. And that... The things you do better are stupid, Brandon. Shut it's, the fuck up. <laughs> there is so much hubris in this, especially in fucking 2005 as a guy who has published one novel. Gene Wolfe and Ursula Le Guin are grand masters of science fiction. Like, that is not me saying I love these authors. That is like an objective fact out in the world. I think that they may in fact both have won awards that have like the word grandmaster in the title. Even if that's not literally true, like, I guarantee you, you can find people, like, 
discussing greats of the genre who are just there casually like, oh yes, as everyone knows, Gene Wolfe and Ursula K. Le Guin are masters of the genre. Like, they are fucking giants. And Brandon, uh, well, with I... one book on under his belt, is like, oh yeah, I think I can do some shit much better than them. Like, fuck off! No, you can't! Like, <laughs> I... Like... I... I, the way of kings is like a compelling and page turning, like an actiony book about, uh, like you know, like political machinations and blah blah blah. Um, like the tombs of Atuan is like a a short, concise, and fucking like. When I say magical, I don't mean that there is magic done in the setting. I mean, like, there is a magic done on me, the reader, as this, like, rumination on, like, how gender is constructed in young women and, like, the things that society, like, does to us. And Brandon can't do that. I would would point out, I googled Gene Wolfe Awards and I googled Ursula Le Guin Awards, and as far as the Google autocomplete, like... Not as a page, but like as a feature of Google showing me a list of awards. It looks like Ursula Le Guin has more than twice as many, but Gene Wolfe has a lot. Yeah. And well, also, well, he, I, she has a, a lot of different awards. He's won a couple of these awards like six times. Oh, that's true. Yeah. See, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also, I will say that Ursula Le Guin has won an award called the Gandalf Grandmaster Award in 1979. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Yeah. I also, okay, in terms of, I feel like this this comparison to Gene Wolfe and Ursula Le Guin is really, really unflattering to him because, okay, Ursula Le Guin, she yeah. has, I would say that Ursula Le Guin's artistic goals are, for the most part, very, very different from Brandon Sanderson's. Yes. And, and that is kind of what he's trying to do in this paragraph, right? And say like, oh, Ursula Le Guin is like a masterful prose stylist and just in general, she's doing something totally different than I am. Therefore, I think there's things I do better than her. And, like, that's kind of a stupid comparison because it's like, well, she's not even trying to do the shit you do. So if you say, quote, I do things better than her, like, that's kind of a weird empty statement. It's it's like he's making, like, a, a really well done, like, I don't know, mac and cheese. And she's making, like, <laughs> uh, elaborate, like, oat cuisine. <laughs> That you have to make in a lab. <laughs> and he's like, well, I think I can make a better mac and cheese than her. And it's like, well, she didn't try to do that. So how do you know? Gene, Gene Wolf. Oh, sorry. Also, just like Le Guin has um, talked at length in like forwards to her novels and these sorts of things about like her sort of distaste for like pop fantasy novels that are sort of like regurgitating like very like traditional conservative narratives mm-hmm. to you um to like make you feel better um I-, I am a huge fan of brandon sanderson novels i would also describe his novels as sort of regurgitating conservative stories that you already know back at you to like make you feel good <laughs> yeah and okay so by I, the contrast i want to draw here ursula Le Guin just doing something completely different from brandon sanderson so the idea that he does certain things better than her just like a weird thing to talk about because it's like putting her down for doing stuff that she doesn't not doing stuff that she doesn't care about gene wolf on the other hand 
Gene Wolfe is doing some of the stuff that Brandon cares about. Gene Wolfe is, for example, extremely interested in developing a world where, as you read the book, you come to realize certain things about how the... Um, usually I don't think it's like straight up quote unquote magic in Gene Wolfe's books, but certain things about how the 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 Nova, the things in this science fiction or fantasy work that are not the same as the real world, you come to realize how they function in a material way. And as you come to understand those material functions, that tells you things about this world and the people in it. And it tells you things about what might happen in the plot. And it, it, you, it sort of starts to come together as you re read it. And you're like, oh, wait, shit. If that's like the things that I've seen the claw accomplish so far, and these are the things that people say about it, then maybe what the claw actually is, is X, Y, Z. But, and so you see how this is not totally different from what Brandon Sanderson does, right? Like with his magic systems. Right. But Gene Wolfe is so much subtler in this like development of a material world of like a science fiction idea and like how it affects the characters in the plot. Gene Wolfe, establishes the rules for how these things function almost entirely through like vague references like there is never a point in a gene wolf novel where a character sits down and stares to the camera and says here's how aeon door works that's never gonna fucking happen in a gene wolf book because his works are elaborate labyrinths that require you to explore them to find out what is materially happening and like, Gene Wolfe is also interested in world building across a setting that takes place on multiple different planets in the same universe, where there might be some kind of overarching divine plan, or there might not. And, like, you know, there are these heroes of, like, the different stories who have never met and live on separate planets thousands of years apart, and yet their stories are somehow the same. So, like, there is there are elements of what might influence something like the Cosmere in Gene Wolfe's work. And, like, I do actually think, like, in some sense, that the aesthetic goals that Brandon Sanderson has are ones that Gene Wolfe accomplishes in some sense better than Brandon Sanderson. And that's not me saying, oh, don't bother to read Gene, uh, don't bother to read Brandon Sanderson. Gene Wolfe does it all better. I don't, that's not what I mean. I don't think that's, like, a reasonable mm -hmm. way to think about art. But, like, oh, God, like, he's, he's just, this is such a massive own goal. He didn't have to say this. <laughs> if he, the, also, it's just funny because he somehow laser targeted, like, reached through time and, like, laser targeted this at us. Because if he had just said, there are some things I think I do better than Robert Jordan. Or Jack Vance. Or George R. Or Orson Martin. Scott Card. <laughs> None of us would care. Also, yes, something I hate about this paragraph is that it is implicitly kind of saying, here's three greats of the genre. Orson Scott Card, Gene Wolfe, and Ursula Le Guin. And I don't like Orson Scott Card, but I, I can't disagree that he is also kind of like a, a huge deal in science fiction, right? Um, but the way that yeah. he talks about these authors... He, he praises Orson Scott Card and has no criticism for him. All he says is that Card's writing turns minimalist mm -hmm. prose into like an aesthetic goal in itself. Whereas he does, you know, praise Le Guin and Wolf, but he also criticizes them. It's like, I think I do some things better. Like, it is implicit I, that he I, thinks that he doesn't do anything better than Orson Scott Card. 
<laughs> I think what he's trying to say is that every individual author has their thing that they do better than anyone else. But I, the, the but he doesn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> I think like, what he's trying to mean is that. And but, say that, like, sir, there's things that I do that Ursula Glenn wouldn't or... Like, or couldn't. I don't know if couldn't, but, you know. <laughs> just, uh, you know. But, but, I think that's what he's trying to say, but what he does say yeah. is that Orson Scott Card is an author beyond reproach <laughs> in a way that Gene Wolfe and Ursula Le Guin are not. Just, just absurd. <laughs> I've only, I've only read one Orson Scott Card book. Um, there's only one that's worth reading, so. Is that true? Um, how many books has this guy read? I mean, I mean, written. So, I, you know, I am an immense fan of Ender's Game. That is a book that was very personally meaningful yeah. to me. Um, I would read it again today, to be honest with you, despite, you know. Well, he's way younger than I thought he was. Y- you know, he's 70. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Um. It's. It, Orson Scott Card is like a man with a lot of problems who I don't want to like, you know. He's like prop a up on right? this, huh? He's like a homophobe, is that right? Oh yes. Okay, like, that's all I know. And not just like he says bad things, but he like, like has like his actions have had like material effects in the world. Like he has been at the forefront of like campaigns to like ban you know gay marriage in the u.s and stuff like this yeah, yeah so he's a he's a bad man i like ender's game a lot i didn't realize ender's game was his first book i didn't either uh i like ender's game a lot um i genuinely of the two other of his books that i've read i don't think there was a single word in them that i think was worth reading like speaker for the dead and xenocide i just the total wastes of my time absolute trash <laughs> you know um, i remember reading speaker for the dead and getting like six pages in and giving up i yeah you made the right I read choice. all of but i, was I child, read all of speaker for so. the dead yeah as a child years and years and years ago um mostly what i remember about it is the really like fucked up biology stuff like yeah. what if what if an alien species had the most like misogynist imaginable mating cycle. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, yeah, it just. Uh, I I I also maybe want to talk a little bit about as long as we're talking about how Brandon positions himself with regards to his genre and like what he thinks other authors are doing. I would be very interested to talk about some of the stuff he says in the annotation to chapter 19, uh, where he talks about what he thinks the difference is between science fiction and fantasy. (gasps) Oh, I missed this. Uh, I, I, um, I spent some time skimming. I did not like read the whole, you know, mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. So. So, um, so he, uh, he says that like, what he says, the thing that he specifically says that I that I'm like, wow, is um, some people. He, he's talking. He, th- the reason he's talking about this here is that he started in this chapter really detailing the details of the magic system. I guess some people have accused me of writing science fiction that masquerades as fantasy. Th- that is, of course, an exaggeration. I like fantasy idioms, the deep characterization, 
the slower plot progression, the sense of wonder and magic, far more than I like the science fiction counterparts. However, I'll admit that I do design my magic systems with an eye for science. I, I just... Lots of science fiction has deep characterization, slow plot progression, and a sense of wonder. In fact, the phrase sense of wonder is one that people sometimes use to try to define the concept of science fiction. <laughs> like, so, even Christopher Paolini can do two of those things in his sci-fi book. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say he does deep characterization, but, you know. So... There's something that has come up on Just King Things. I don't know if either of you listen I, to I do. Things. I, I listen to it, and I, I really like it. And I love the bits where they get into what Stephen King thinks about genre, so go on. <laughs> yeah, so this is where I was going. Something that's come up quite a bit on Just King Things as of late is Cameron... Uh, when I say theory, I mean, like, explanation of... Um, explanation of, like, you know, things that he's observing in the novels. I don't mean theory as in, like, a hypothesis, you know, like a a sort of guess. Uh, His sort of theory of Stephen King is that Stephen King is not a horror writer, but rather a um, science fiction writer. Um, And this is why he is so preoccupied with, like, telekinesis and also explaining that telekinesis is like a real phenomenon i love this shit and i did not realize that stephen king was into this shit i I will need to read more king because i love psychic powers especially like yeah psychic powers as a magic as a form of magic that can be tracked and like measured yes um, and this is the sort of way and uh, specifically i i have a fondness for the 20th century like attempts to like categorize um psi powers psi power like yeah this con- you should read carrie this, con- this is a book about well, these this things. conception that people writing in the 20th century have of attempts to like categorize magical powers or like mm. conceive of magical powers and like as like you know esp or espers and it's like ah this this stuff's really weird and cool and yeah you should you should uh, read more King then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is something that Cameron's been talking about a lot. Is Stephen King is sort of science fiction writer who, um, like science fiction writer who works in the horror genre. Yeah, I, I, I could, saw Doctor Sleep the movie. Yeah, for real. No. Yeah. Very much so. Um, and I I would maybe be comfortable like describing Brandon Sanderson as, as a, a science writer. fiction oh, okay. <laughs> as a science fiction. <laughs> writer who is working as sort of like fantasy idiom a lot of the time. Yeah, so this is... Um, I I am very interested in, like, uh, the theory of science fiction and fantasy as genres, or maybe as a genre. Sometimes people talk about SFF or speculative fiction. Um, This is something that uh, I am constantly talking to Ben about in person, verbally. Uh, We don't don't really talk about it on our podcast, because Moby Dick is not really science fiction, but um, uh, but, like, uh, I, I think that, um, so there's this concept of science fantasy. Uh, Star Wars is mm-hmm. often described as science fantasy. Um, a lot of Gene Wolfe's work is often described as science fantasy. Um, and what that tends to mean is that it is like, in some sense, kind of technically speaking science fiction. Like it, I mean, in a weird way, the, the concept here is almost like it's got spaceships 
and laser swords. Um, and it might be set in like, uh, on, on a distant planet, but it has the feel of fantasy. And I, I'm, I may be sounding a little bit, I, I think that's a weird way to define a genre, but I also do think that science fantasy is a real aesthetic that exists. Like, I think when you, it's go on. Sorry. I was going to mention that, like, as I have, like, been poking back at older fantasy books, as I have been, like, reading Jack Vance, Mm -hmm. as I've been reading Michael Moorcock, I have, like, realized that the the hardline distinction between fantasy and sci-fi is a much more recent... Phenomenon yeah. than I had I don't think because... I don't think I would say that's true. I think that when you're reading Michael Moorcock, you're reading a guy who is participating in an artistic movement that is blurring that line in some ways. Because if you look at mm-hmm. uh like um short stories published in magazines in the fifties, that line's pretty hard and bright. Um but I also don't think it's a, a theoretically strong line in the way that people think it is. It's hard and bright in the sense that like people know the difference between a story set on a distant planet and a story set like in a like a, a weird place with magic. Does that make sense? Like I think those genre distinctions yeah. do exist in a strong way in the past, but then people have always been troubling them in complicated ways. And I think mm. Michael Moorcock is one of the guys who does that. The reason I brought up science fantasy was to say that I kind of think a lot of Brandon Sanderson's work is the opposite of science fantasy, where someone like Gene Wolfe is writing a world which, if you, like, drill down super hard, you're like, oh, this is, like, a world where science functions and there are, like, spaceships and lasers, but it feels like a fantasy world, and, like, the characters approach the spaceships and lasers as though they are magic. On the other hand, Brandon Sanderson's work is like, oh, if you focus on the, um, like, when you drill right down to it, it's like, oh, yes, this is magic. This is gods and, like, spiritual forces. But the way that the characters approach it is in some ways as though it were science. Um, I I think that is, that, like, uh, Brandon's work, which he's sometimes called hard fantasy, which is a very funny phrase, uh, is almost (laughs) like approaching a similar um, overlap as science fantasy from the other side. Um, it's there's actually a specific um, we will read next week as we mentioned that um, that brief essay mm-hmm. at the start of Hope of Elantris. That is like specifically the the conceit of Arcanum Unbounded as a text is that this person named Chris is literally like doing scientific papers on. The various the, planets the, in the cosmos, yeah, and the and magic, and the way that magic works, and it is literally like a, a scientific expedition, sort yeah. of. So this is also, I guess, sort of my broad thought about the annotations in general. Here is that they don't. None of the annotations made me think more deeply or be more interested in Elantris. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the annotations were principally interesting because, like, they're very revealing of who Brandon is as a writer and as a person. Yeah, I yeah. Feel like. Or at least <laughs> revealing of, like, who he is in 2005. Uh, you know. Um, yes. Like, 
just the sort of like and we've talked about it all through the book like the sorts of assumptions that go into this book um like cultural assumptions that i think he just makes constantly something Um, amazing he says in the uh part one wrap-up annotation writing is truth What? <laughs> Writing is truth, and it should deal with important topics. However, before that truth must come enjoyment, I believe. Um. <laughs> I have a question about this. Isn't it lying? I. I mean, I don't think Elantris is a real I, place. <laughs> I think what he means by that is like. Writing ought to contain truths about, like, the human condition or, like, truths about life or or, or even, like, kind of, like, ethical lessons. Um, but at the uh-huh. same time, writing isn't worth anything unless it's enjoyable to read. But the- But the fact that he just kind of lays out writing is truth as something that everyone will accept and that doesn't require explanation. <laughs> wow. There is a sort of, like, naivety. Am I saying that word right? I think so. Anyway, um, to to the way that Brandon is writing in the annotations, because he'll just drop aphorisms like writing is truth, or, like, you know... I think he is at a place, at least in 2005, and I believe still in 2021, where, um, like, he very much believes in, like, the Mormon church and what it does. And he just believes that and does not spend any time in this book or in these annotations questioning that. Uh, he, um, like, a science is another sort of, like, unquestioned, like, Ah, yeah, science, that thing that we all agree on and understand and, like, you know, science is just this sort of thing that is. And I don't have to define it because you all know what science is. And it's just very funny, I guess, like, as a person who, you know, you read these books, like, I am a person who is, like, very skeptical of the, like, you know... Um, this sort of, like, understanding that, like, science all, always produces, like, true outcomes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Like, we know that, like, you know, capital can influence, like, what science, like, what research is done and, you know, the sorts of results of that research. And, like, it is performed by humans who make errors and, um... Yeah. Like... Brandon does have... Yeah. Brandon has what's sometimes called a scientistic worldview is what you're describing. Yes. Um, okay, there's a word for this. Yeah, Great. yeah. Th- awesome. Because I, dis- I have been aware of this for years, and I have been aware that, like, I don't subscribe to this in any way, but I didn't know there was a word yeah, for it. So yeah, yeah. Like, you. what you're describing is a perspective where you have some degree of, like, uh, critique of science as a social institution and as a means for generating knowledge. You have some understanding of maybe, like, the history of science or the social determination of science. And yeah, I agree with you. I don't think Brandon Sanderson is aware of any of those things. Um, <laughs> and I want to be clear also, you don't have to think that like science is fake <laughs> to, to, ex- no, to understand no. that, like, as you say, science is done by people. Um, 
But yeah. like, I think, I mean, one of the things that I think is very obnoxious is that Brandon seems to believe that, you know, I've said that the way that his characters approach their magic systems feels like it just kind of is scientific. And I think he thinks of it as scientific, but I think that's because he thinks of any type of, um, like systematic empirical inquiry as science. And that's not true. Sci- yes. Science yes. as like a, a cultural concept is something that developed in the real world historically. And like the, the, the ways yes. of like exploring the world and determining truth about it, even if those ways of determining truth involve like gathering evidence from the material world uh, that existed in say, like, you know, the, the like, classical greek period those were not science like mm-hmm. ancient greek philosophers were not scientists aristotle was not a scientist um but right. but i think that brandon sanderson has a view of the world where his characters who are totally disconnected from the real world historical institution of science are still in some sense scientists because he thinks of it as a yeah. an internal thing <laughs> This is, like, why I think, like, Frankenstein and Dracula are such interesting novels, because it's, like, they're being written in the 19th century, and they're novels about, like, what science is, because science is a relatively new sort of, like, concept in society that people are, like, interrogating in fiction. And then, like, just goes, like, uncriticized (laughs) in um, so much of Brandon Sanderson's work. Um, And, yeah, there's just all... I didn't take notes, so I don't have... And and also, like, there's so much stuff that I just, like, want to read that, like, he just says shit that I find hilarious constantly in these annotations. But, like, I'm not just going to read the annotations to you listeners. That would be boring. And also, I need to leave in 30 minutes, so... <laughs> I, I do want to... I, I, I think... We don't necessarily yeah. have to talk about all of it, but I do want to mention that there's... You talked about his, like, faith in the Mormon church and the Mormon church's way of doing things. And there's some talk in these annotations about his missionary experience and what he thinks Mm -hmm. about religion and, like, what religion is in the world and what people are motivated to do by religion that I think is very illuminating about Brandon Sanderson's perspective and very 2005. (laughs) Um, There's a bit where he talks about what he thinks miracles are and, like, the way that he thinks that miracles should never actually be the foundation of faith. Um, there's a bit where he talks about, like, uh, how he thinks that it is right to try to convert other people to your religion and people have, like, the right to believe that their religion is the true one, but also that, like, being too mean about it is, is wrong. Um. (laughs) (laughs) This is, it, it smacks extremely of. This is how I was taught to convert people to my religion. Yeah, I mean, I, you know? I think that he is thoughtful about these things. I just think that he is thoughtful about these things from a uh, from a very specific context that he is not yes. really willing yes. to question. Um, like, yes. yeah. Um, also, um, there's a very, very funny thing where he talks about masochism and sadism a few times. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah. Where I'm, I'm not even sure he really knows what those words mean. He might kind of think they mean the same thing. <laughs> he refers to himself as a. He says something like, "I'm a closet masochist, like all writers," and it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> 
You want to tell us more about this closet, Brandon? Oh, God, yeah. And, like, he he's just not... He thinks... What he means by that is something along the lines of, like, I like to put my characters through hell. And I think, basically, all writers like to do that. And I don't think that's true of all writers, this... but, you know, I'm sure that's true of Brandon. He clearly does like to put his characters through hell. But... Just such a weird way of putting it. There is a sort of, like... I think of this as a very rolling thing, but I think there were authors before and after rolling who were, like, going up... Like, George R. R. Martin, I think, is also one of these, um, and I associate him with the trend of, like, doing Q&As with fans where, you know, they're just talking about, like, oh, I just loved killing your favorite character, and I loved, like, having your favorite character tortured, and, like... I think this is just, like, a popular, and I think 21st century, but I could be wrong, like, because I just don't know much about this trend before that, like, the strain of, like, posting, almost, that uh, many writers do. This is also a thing in IRL writer spaces in the 2000s. Yeah. uh, Because people that I was around were always talking about, like, I love making my characters suffer. I love to make all the worst things happened to these poor characters and have created them to suffer. Yeah. It was certainly a, a thing that everyone sort of, who was uh, in a, like a writing space that I was in was, yeah. was, was saying as well. <sighs> I have great news. I don't news. even think of Brandon as like a guy who does this in a lot of his novels, but anyway. I have great news. Tell me the good news. One, there's an annotation page for The Hope of Elantris. Two, there are annotations for every chapter of Warbreaker. Three. There are annotations for every chapter of the first three Mistborn books. Oh, nice. I could imagine us not de- deciding not to go into all this stuff again in the future. Like I, I just yeah. I might I might want to do it for Warbreaker because of the interesting way that novel was produced. That's but I true. I don't necessarily I don't want to ruin Mistborn for myself. Can I just like <laughs> be real with you? Like I really like Mistborn and just don't want to end mm-hmm. up hating it because I read too much of what Brandon thought about it. <laughs> Yeah. Um are if if people are not familiar, Warbreaker is a novel that Brandon like wrote a chapter and then would put it on his blog and then would write two more chapters and put those on his blog. And like sort of writes the book like in this very like web 2.0 sort of way where it's like coming out on his like WordPress or whatever. Um, and those chapters are on piece. the website still. Those chapters are... They do get, like... This is weird to talk about with Brandon, because at that point in his career, he's a pretty experienced novelist, and he, like, outlines really well. So, like, they do get edited. Like, that is only a first draft that you see online. There mm. are changes. Okay. But they are not substantial changes. They're not, like, the change that happens to Way of Kings between the first... Tra- or, or, you know, it's not cutting out the Mad Prince. Yeah. They're, like... Oh, here's some continuity he knows what the stuff. Book is when he starts, in this here's case. like, oh, I could have done this scene a little better. Mm. But like, Warbreaker is a novel that sort of like comes out um, piecemeal in so, a weird public way. Too. Yeah. So maybe for those at the end, I would be interested in reading the annotations because that might tie into like how the novel is produced. That might be interesting. But I don't think we need to do this with Miss Bourne. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I genuinely am, like, curious about how his ideas about what writing is and what it's for and, like, what genre is. I'm interested to see how those develop. But 
I also have a certain inkling that actually they're not going to develop that much because I've read fucking Perfect State. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Perfect State is a place where ideas about genre and about the purpose of like entertainment are tossed up into the air and then just allowed to splat onto the pavement. <laughs> I really dodged a bullet by having a surgeon like cut me open instead of having to read Perfect State. <laughs> I mean, I'm... It sounds preferable. I'm really glad I read it because, as I said, I think it really gave a window into the bizarre way that Brandon Sanderson's work sets up questions about, like, what the purpose of an entertaining fantasy narrative is and, like, what it does to you as a person to read books like that and pattern yourself after them. But I also, yeah, it makes it so clear that he is just, like, no thoughts, head empty about these things in a way that is so hard to understand. Um, so that makes me really want to read these annotations to see, like, how can he be so thoughtful and yet so thoughtless? But at the same time, that may get exhausting. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, we had an email. We did have an email. I posted it in our group Yes, chat. that's true. We will be doing more emails at the end of each book. Yeah. And I don't think The Hope of Elantris counts as its own book for this purpose. If you have some burning question about The Hope of Elantris, please email it. But uh, I can't imagine who you are. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Autumn, would you like to read this email from Matt? Hi. I'm not sure if you went over these at the start of the podcast, but if not, can I hear a little summary of your Sanderson histories? We've gone over these. I have read, at this point, this was not true when we started the podcast, but it was becoming true, and I think it is true now. I have read almost every one of the major novels that has been published in the Cosmere. Um, I have not read some of the short stories. Nora, you have read more of the short stories, but haven't read some of the more recent novels. Mm -hmm. um, I also haven't read Warbreaker. Yeah. Um, and then, Mark, you've... You can speak for yourself. I don't want to like assume. Yeah, so I um, I have read um, the the first novel in the Way of Kings. That is the no the the Way of Kings, which is the first novel in a series that has some other name, right? Storm, yeah, Stormlight. Yeah, Stormlight. Yes. There we go. I've read the Way of Kings. I've read Warbreaker. Um, I read like the first chapter of Mistborn and threw it against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I have read Perfect State over the course of this podcast, and obviously now I've read Elantris, and that is all the Brandon Sanderson that I've read. And also, the ones that I had read before I read started this podcast, The Way of Kings and Warbreaker, I do not remember very well at all, especially Warbreaker. So I, I am a, not precisely coming to all these novels fresh, but, like, pretty close. Um... I am, I, I am also kind of, like, doing my best to be as fresh and uninfluenced in oh. my experience of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere as I, as I can be. Um. Um. Seems like Mark lost us. <sighs> or we lost Mark. Anyway. Hello. Oh. Hi. Hey, uh, it seems like Discord disconnected us or something like that, huh? Okay. So, you were saying, um, 
You'd read one page of Mistborn, or one chapter. Oh, right, the first chapter of Mistborn. Okay, yeah, I understand now. Okay. Yeah, I read the first chapter of Mistborn <laughs> and then threw it against the wall. Um, and it sounds yeah. like you missed everything I was saying after that. You you said that you were not entirely coming in fresh, but... And then you would disappear. Yeah, I basically, I, I am coming in, I think... Uh, I am definitely the person on this podcast who has read the least... Brandon Sanderson, um, and I am kind of trying to like cultivate that and like be at come as fresh as I possibly can to these Cosmere books. Try to have like the experience of them that someone who just like got into his books with Elantris and was reading them as they came out might have. Um, I I want to just be like, who is this Hoyd guy? What is this quote unquote Cosmere thing? And like try to. Not know about yeah. stuff like that ahead of time. Um, so yeah, that is my perspective. The The second part of Matt's question, um, I'm going to give a sort of brisk answer to because I do need to head out soon. Um, but I think it's interesting. Uh, how would you folks reshape this novel to be less garbage? Uh, more specifically, if you had to add one perspective to add as a fourth viewpoint to this book, who would you add? Something that I think is very tempting when making a, like, chapter-by-chapter book podcast is to sort of, like, rewrite the book on the fly a Mm. little bit. I I can... We've done it a little bit. Um, It is a temptation that I feel constantly where I'm like, oh, well, if you just did this scene differently. I think that this is, like, a black hole for good podcasting. I think Mm -hmm. that this is, like... Nothing good comes of indulging my, you know. I'm not get too obsessed with it, and you'll be like, "Why isn't this what I want?" Yeah, well, and like, I just don't want to spend the next couple years of my life, you know, rewriting books that I by and large like. I don't. This is not an impulse that I really want to spend too much time indulging on the podcast, especially with a book like Elantris that I think might just be beyond salvation. <laughs> I don't know. There might be p- elements of no, this you novel. Know I can I can fix this book instantly. Okay. This is the backstory of an actual book. This is not the book you read. This yeah. is like in broad strokes the backstory leading into an actual book that's good. <laughs> because the facts of this book you can turn into a perfectly serviceable story. Yeah. Um Yeah. If you but having to spend so long with these facts as they are presented is a horrible experience. <laughs> um but if we did want to add one perspective to Ath as a act as a fourth in this uh triad system that Brandon has developed here uh, who, what fourth perspective would you want to add to this book? Just to see what's going on. I have an answer. I have a super quick answer. Ash. Hit Ash. Me. I want a viewpoint Sion. And this is something he talks about in the annotations. He was like, there was going to be more Sion stuff. I was going to, and like, maybe in the sequel, I'm going to have a viewpoint Sion. And I'm just like reaching through the computer and shaking his shoulders and being like, do that, you idiot, you motherfucker. Give me the viewpoint Sion. <laughs> Here's the other thing. Is him saying in the annotations, I think, somewhere that the sec- the sequel to Elantris will be about the three siblings? Yeah. Um, that, oh my that, god. Yeah, hmm. and, that, and that would, in theory, continue the chapter triad system and be about the three siblings. You know, the, uh, the bratty kid, 
the married guy and the magic autism guy as the, the main heroes of the sequel. Yeah, that sucks. I don't care about that. So I want to hear about yeah. I want to hear about Ash's adventures. I want to hear about Ash's knowledge of Atlantis before the fall and of the thousands of years of history. I want to hear what Ash knows about what Fjordal was before it was an empire, before they had a wern. I uh, I had a couple know, answers to this question. You know the thing um, that people talk about so much with web comics where. You know, you read the first chapter and you read the last chapter and you're like, wow, over 10 years, this artist has gotten so much better at just like drawing faces or hands Uh or whatever. Sure. Um, There's almost that effect in this book where Ash is a prominent character in the first like 20 chapters of this book and then disappears. (laughs) Not in the novel anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Like Brandon just decides to take it in a different direction and then never like uh, in none of the later drafts does he like make Ash's role in the first part of the book, like, larger or smaller to be, you know, congruous with the rest of the book. Um, here are some ideas I have Yeah, for fourth character to add to this book. Okay. One is obviously Galadon. Mm. Could work. Galadon or Diloph, I think, are, like, the layup answers. Um, the other one I thought of was... Wern? Oh, there's no Wern in this book, and that sucks. There's no Wern in this book. There's no Wern in this book. There's no Wern in this book. Um, What if you got, like... What if at the end of each act, you got one perspective chapter from Wern? Just, like, here and there. Just, like, a little tidbit. That would be good. The other option was... um, I swear I had another one for this, but I can't remember now. Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I swear, there was, I swear there was another character in this book somewhere, but I don't remember now. The The cast of this book is so big, and also none of them matter other than the main three. Yeah. The main three, Diloph and Eodon, I guess. Femboy Pope? Doesn't matter. We could add the Femboy Pope to the... No! Oh, okay. <laughs> it, oh, Omen might be interesting to have the Harrythan and Omen as, like, two different perspectives. Yeah, that could I be I don't fun. know what he's doing. He's probably just living his life. I feel like... I feel like that's more in a, you know, Stormlight-style book where you can just, like, have a character who only gets, like, two perspective chapters in the whole book. Mm. Whereas, like, this book has such a much more rigid structure. Dreyak Crushthroat? Yeah, I I definitely am starting to have that feeling of like, oh, there's nothing we can do to save this book. Like, even this thing where I'm like so yeah. excited about the idea of more Sion content. Like, I know that if he actually put that in Elantris, it, it wouldn't be good. Like, I wouldn't actually enjoy it. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested when he gets around to Elantris too. Um, also, in the annotations, it's mentioned that he, he wrote the first draft of Elantris in 1999. It's been... 22 years and he says he's gonna write a sequel to this well Fuck he, off. he said he he's laid it out his plan is I to know. do elantris after he finishes the first half of stormlight and the current mistborn thing that he's working on so it'll be like 25 years between his first draft of elantris and you know the first draft how do you of the know sequel? he doesn't already have a first draft of elantris because it's not on his fucking progress bar on his web page but there's other, there are plenty of books that he's written that aren't on the progress bar because he's going to have to rewrite them. 
Like, Dragonsteel exists. I guess. I guess. Anyway. We are too in the yeah. weeds. We should we should do plugs and get out of here. Yeah. <sighs> um, Mark, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Char Asnablunt, and you can find my Moby Dick podcast, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, at abnormalmapping.com slash whale. Uh, and, like... I try not to say this super often, but, like, that is a podcast about a good book. We are never tempted to rewrite (laughs) Moby Dick to make it better. (laughs) I would love the hubris of being, like, there are certain things that we do better than Melville. Would love that. You want to know something I'm doing right now better than Melville's doing? (sighs) I mean, (laughs) I think being alive in the 21st century. I think he would agree that the fact that you're alive and he's dead is one you've got on him. (laughs) Doing something mean to it. (laughs) Um, Nora. Yeah. Where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at neither Nora. Find stuff I've done at norablake.online. You can listen to Attention Duelist, which I'm recording right after this, at exportaud.io. Uh, that's. I guess you won't listen to it on there, but you can find a link to it on there. Yeah. It doesn't go on the Patreon. That's exportaud.io slash Yu Gi Oh! Yu Gi Oh! It's a fun anime. Eventually, we'll finish and we'll watch Yu Gi Oh! Yeah. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Atumble underscore coffee. You can listen to all my other podcasts at exportodd.io. And um, you could give us a dollar a month. You get access to this podcast early, Ornate Stairwells, Hot Singles, uh, Gotham City Limits, Bag End Book Club. Bag End Book Club. We're also recording that today. We're also recording that today. If you like this podcast, I guarantee you, you will like Bag End Book Club because it is... Pretty much the same thing, but with slightly different hosts and better books. Also, we're reading Tolkien instead of Sanderson. Yes. Now, Sanderson may not be a master wordsmith or linguist the way that Tolkien is, but there are some things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Much as I love Brandon Sanderson books, um, The Hobbit is probably... The Hobbit is probably better than any individual Brandon Sanderson book that I've read. (laughs) Anyway... um, Muhammad is better than most books. Yeah. That exist. I think. I, I think so. Yeah. Um. Oh, and people should listen to Ornate Stairwells. I'm very proud of that podcast. They mm-hmm. should just listen to it. We just covered In the Mood for Love, and tonight we're going to be recording an episode about City of God. Um, we're just playing the hits. In the Mood for Love, a rare Ornate Stairwells movie that I've heard of. <laughs> I've known about I've seen that thing about this before. So. All right. Um, more familiar with it than, say, the the German one. Wings of Desire is a very famous movie. Never heard of it. Mad God, never heard of it. We're not going to cover Mad God. You just said. I said we might, and I took it off the list because they were doing NFT bullshit. And, you know. I don't know what they're talking about. Anyway. Podcast. You know what? Thanks, Brandon. I was gonna say that. We'll say it. Thanks, Brandon. (laughs) Thanks, Brandon. (laughs) Alright, I need to get going.